life. We didn't want to take uh, this weekend, let it pass without honoring those that have served this Veterans Day weekend. So if I could do something briefly, if you have served or are serving in any branch of the military, could you stand where you are so we can honor you and uh, give it up for you and thank you? Well, I also want to pray. So if you see somebody near you, you want to pray with them, pray for them. Lord God, I lift up each person that's standing here tonight. God, we thank you for their sacrifice, that verse that was at the end of that video, to lay down your time, your energy for your friends, Lord God, is, is meaningful to you. There's no greater love. So I pray that the same way that they've provided our freedoms through their sacrifice, God, I pray that you would be a God of provision and a Lord of provision over their lives in this season and every season. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And Neil, stay standing. And Mies, can you stand? This is uh, their last weekend here with City Life. I know, Neil, I feel like we, you just, he did just get back. He just got back from deployment, and they're about to ship out. So we want to pray for them as it is their last uh, weekend here. Is Olivia in the nursery? Yeah, y'all can give hugs and kisses on the way out. But uh, can, we, can we pray for them? And if you know them, you want to lay hands on them, let's do that as we just pray that God will bless them. Lord God, we lift up the meese to you and we thank you for them. God, we thank you for their family. We thank you for their faith. God, we thank you for their heart for the church. And we thank you for their heart for you. Lord God, and we know that you love them and you are sovereign over this season. You're sovereign over every detail. So the same way we just prayed that you would be a provider for all our veterans, I just pray a special prayer of provision and favor over them and their family, over Olivia, their marriage, their finances, this move, Lord God, that there would be no detail that you are not Lord over and making it glaringly evident in this move, Lord God, that it would just be drenched with your favor and your peace. God, your joy as they go to move to be closer to family. Lord God, we know that we're going to miss them as this church family. God, but we just thank you and rejoice with them. They're our grandparents. They're going to be so excited, God, in these weeks to come. Lord God, so we pray again that you would bless them, keep them, let your face shine upon them in this season. And everybody said amen. Thank you. Thank you. And one last thing. Uh, so the United States Air Force Heritage of America Band, I had to read that to get it right. One of our members at Newport News, Jordan Kimball, uh, is a member of this a band, and they put together a video where it's funny, he posted it yesterday, and then I was like, oh, I know that person. Oh, I know that person. Oh, I know that person. They were all city lifers, so we want to show that video here tonight uh, before we get into the sermon. You, you'll see some faces you know. Everybody call me Stan. I am Alvin Tatum. My name is Alan Smith. And I'm Carla Tatum. And I'm a veteran. And I'm a veteran. And I'm a veteran. I am definitely a veteran. We stopped by, we gave you this band, and we wanted to thank you for your many years of service to the Air Force. And thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Awesome. So for the first 10 years in the Air Force, I was an early morning radar operator. 
turn it over into weather. Uh, I was an interior communications electrician. I worked on TVs, telephones, navigation equipment. So I came in guaranteed weather. I'm, I'm, I've been stationed in Illinois, Minnesota, California, the state of Washington, Alaska, Thailand, uh, Okinawa, TDY, Vietnam for a year. Stationed out in Diego Garcia. I was stationed on the USS John C. Stennis, CBN 74. Stationed at Herbert Field, and we were special operations. So I deployed five times with them. And he sent, then I got went to Vietnam. Hmm. Mama, Mama was, she, I'm gonna stop it because you're a sole surviving heir. I said, no, you won't. She said, you do, I'll override it. I said, Mama, I'm a professional. Because I had like 11 or 12 years in by this time. I said, I'm a professional. This is my job. This is my profession. And I'm gonna go serve like the rest of the guys do. I got to my ship um, days before September 11th happened. As soon as they uh, pulled us in, they, they told us that we're gonna be turning around and heading back out. And we did a lot to help a lot of people on the ground and make a lot of progress in Afghanistan. People don't think that um, weather is a big part of the fight that we take on terrorism, but when you see that your forecast specifically impacts people getting home to their families, it makes all the difference. Yeah, the things that I learned in were were more patriotic than I ever thought I was going to have. But the people, the difference it makes in wherever you're stationed is the people, right? In the locale. The values I learned was about team, teamwork, mm -hmm. teammanship. You care, you know, pick up for the next guy. It, that thing of working together, of caring for each other, you know. I was proud of being in the Air Force, and I, I would do it all over again. Yeah, to, to know Stan is to love him. There's a reason why most people, when they see Stan, like, hey, what's up, Stan the man. It's not just Stan. Stan is the man. That man had a Johnny Cash book and a Hulk action figure on his bookshelf, man. <laughs> to know Stan is to love him. But all our veterans, everybody here that served, we love you. We want to honor you this weekend. And, again, we're going to keep praying for you. And uh, let's keep praying for, again, our youth. This section is usually full of youth. I was joking with Mike. I was like, you got to hold it down for all the rows where the youth normally sit uh, because they are off being ministered to, pursuing God. They're probably on their way back soon. I don't know those details. I used to, right, because I used to be the youth pastor. But they are off. And maybe it's fitting that this uh, section is empty tonight because we're talking about the next generation tonight. But not their role, uh, our role. Our role to lead and to grow and to, to focus on that next generation. Because in this holiday season, uh, time with loved ones is probably forthcoming with Thanksgiving, with Christmas. Maybe you're traveling. Maybe they're coming to you. Maybe you're the host. Maybe your mom is always the host. Whatever it may be. So we're in this series called Ancestry.Christ. And we're looking at the family tree that produced divinity, Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because you think... If God was going to send his only son, right, to take on flesh and join mankind, that he would place them in a carefully vetted, background-checked family tree of the religious elite, like the best of the best. But as we talked about last weekend, Jesus' family tree is full of wild characters and broken branches, right? There's as many righteous branches as there are ratchet, there's horrible, and there's holy. All throughout this tree, all kinds of crazy fruit. And let me be honest, I hate that for that family tree. 
but I kind of like it for mine because it's reassuring because my family isn't perfect. My family tree isn't perfect. None of our families are perfect. Some of ours are loud and dramatic. Others are dull and distant. And no matter where your family fits on that spectrum, none of ours are perfect. So there's, there's reassurance and there's lessons to be had from looking at Jesus's. So last weekend we parked it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And, and this verse reads, Matthew 1, 1, that this is a record. Another translation says genealogy of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. And I'm going to spare you a second reading of the entire genealogy this week because last weekend y'all found out it's long and there's a lot of crazy names in there. But we read through the entire thing last weekend and last week I preached a sermon called The Gap because this page, right, the page before Matthew 1 represents 400 years of prophetic silence represents the pause between God's promises made and God's promises delivered. And for all of us, there will be times in life where a promise is made and we have to wait for that promise to be fulfilled. And we talked about how Abraham's faith, as described in Romans 4, should inform our own faith. But this week, I want to look at the second forefather mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, at the roots of Jesus' family tree, which is David. And if you're taking notes, the sermon title is Royal Fumble, because there were definitely some royal rumbles between David's children, and some of these ended in death. And they, many of them are because of David's royal fumbles as a father. Because while he carried the sword as a warrior, he carried the scepter as a king, he fumbled the baton as a father again and again. How many broken branches could have been prevented in Jesus' family tree if he showed the same skill and same passion at home that he did on the battlefield or on the throne? Because while he carried those things, he, he dropped that baton as a parent. And as for Christ's family tree, right, Steph was sitting here last week when I read through it, and she, I said the name Abiel. Looked like Ariel, right? It is a B. So I said Abiel, and she started giggling at me. So like I said last week, I didn't have time to look up all those names. But you best believe I looked up that one afterwards. I was close. I was close. Just put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? It's an old Hebrew name that means God is my father. Right? And Jesus, he would have echoed these words. God is my father. Right? Jesus was the son of God. And yet we also see in Matthew 1, 1 and throughout this genealogy that Jesus was also the son of man. In this passage, we see he's the son of David. And this speaks to the fact that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And Matthew uses the name of David some 17 times in his gospel, more than any other book in the New Testament. The son of David being shouted at Jesus again and again. And each time it points to Matthew 1, where as we talked about, these promises were being fulfilled. The prophets we spoke of last weekend also spoke of a son of David to come. Jeremiah twice gives the same prophecy of this righteous branch that's going to come from David's family tree. In Jeremiah 33, verses 15 and 16, it says... In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. You know, as we talked about last weekend, the Israelites, the, the Jewish people have been waiting for hundreds of years and for generations after generation to see this promise and these promises fulfilled. 
But I've heard it said by Bible scholars as well that when people shouted to Jesus, son of David, have mercy, or son of David, trying to get his attention, it was much a question as it was a cry, as if they were asking, what kind of son of David are you? Why would they ask this question? Well, because David's descendants and the branches on his family tree, they were kind of a mixed batch. Again, there was the holy and the horrible, swinging from his son Solomon, who had a harem of wives and idols and slaves, to, to Asa, who fought idolatry, sparked revivals, to Manasseh, who, who worshipped idols to the extent he offered his own children to them in sacrifice. Right? There is a mixed bag when it comes to being a son of David. So when they call out son of David, it's as much a question as it is a cry, what kind of son of David are you? One of the ones that ruled ruthlessly or one of the ones that sparked revivals? And maybe your family tree is just as checkered. We may not like the fruit of our past, but I'm here to tell you tonight that as a member of a family, many of us leading families as parents, we have a say in the future, in the fruit of the future. I was at a pastor's mini conference this week. I was put on by Church Boom at Rob Shepherd's Church Next Level in Yorktown. And one of the pastors that was sharing there, just put it bluntly, he said, look, we are all interim pastors. Whether you serve for 40 years or four years, in the grand scheme of things, you're just an interim pastor for a time. Whether I do this for three more years or three more decades, in the big scheme of things, I'm an interim pastor. The baton will be passed. And we're all here on an interim basis. At some point, we will pass the baton to the next generation, the generation that sits right here. Right? They got next. Right? They're already ministering. Raylan brings kids like crazy. She's inviting them all the time, and they're coming. But they also will one day take the reins of the church and build the kingdom of God and two quick notes on this. First, it's not going very well in the nation. 73% of churches in the United States are in decline. Not growing, but shrinking. Right? They're not investing in the next generation. They're dying out. So only 27% are growing. The second note is it starts at home. Starts at home. As a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for years, and I experienced so much outsourced discipline or hard conversations, but nobody can fill a parent's shoes ever, period. There's a sacred duty that parents have to shape the hearts and minds of, of God's children who we steward, right? Their desires, their heart, their choices. It only takes 10 minutes as a parent to realize you'll never control those things, amen? <laughs> but we're called to influence, to guide, to discipline, and to lead. And David teaches us so many lessons on parenting, and unfortunately, many come from his mistakes. Again, King David was a legendary warrior, right? This is a man who returned with troops early on in his military career. And he would come back, and what he would hear is this chorus of, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. And as a king on his throne, there were people like the woman from Tekoa who comes to him in 2 Samuel who says, you have the wisdom of an angel of God. Right? He's getting all this praise, but the sound of David's parenting was this. <laughs> yeah, if you were falling asleep, you're awake now, right? <laughs> a drop baton. A drop baton. Now, I was watching a documentary recently on biblical archaeology, and uh, it mentioned that it's so hard to find the Israel archaeologically, I believe that's a word, right, because it was such a blip on the bigger scheme of history. We're talking two generations is all the United Kingdom lasted. The kingdom together lasted two generations before it split, became swallowed up by other bigger uh, civilizations because they turned from God 
They turned to idols. They turned to sin. And this was their punishment. And this points back to David's fumbling of his baton to his own children. You know, we often talk about the, the spiritual walk as running a race because Paul speaks to our, our following of Christ like running a race. He looked at, back at his own life and he said, hey, I've run the race. And I think we remind each other often that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Shout out to David Letourneau. Ran his first marathon, the New York Marathon, last week. You still sore? We can pray over your legs later. <laughs> Probably still sore. I've been there, done that. Uh, but uh, congrats. But we should also remember is a relay. The race is bigger than me. The race is bigger than you. The race is bigger than our generation, right? My roommates in college ran track and field. Three separate roommates over the course of four years ran track and field. And I would go to all their meets. And, and the most exciting to me was the relay. And the thing was, my roommate could run the perfect portion of the relay. But if they dropped the baton, it doesn't count for much because they're probably going to lose if you drop the baton. Look, we're an interim church, right? We're running our race. We don't have to be the fastest. We don't have to be the best. But we do need to run our race and then pass the baton. And for many of us, the work we do to prepare the next generation is being done at home with our children. Right? Now, before we dive in any further, a fumbled baton isn't always the fault of the parent. Some of you live with guilt and shame because of a baton that was fumbled, but some young runners refuse to reach out and grasp the baton. But regardless of the root cause, there's nothing more tragic than failing to transfer the baton to those who come after. So I, I want to preach from 2 Samuel 13. We don't have time to read through the whole thing, but I'll give you a synopsis. I don't know what the heading is in your Bible, but if you're taking notes, you can just put down Amnon, Absalom, and absentee parenting. Because it starts with Amnon. Planning that he was sick in an attempt to get alone in a room with his half-sister Tamar, who he had the hots for. David inquired of his health and sent Tamar to him as he requested, pursuing no ill intent. And then Amnon forces himself on his sister. And at this point, you can't fault David. He was angry as he should have been. But maybe because he felt partially guilty or maybe because he was partially passive, David does exactly nothing to punish Amnon. So Tamar's brother and David's son, who he loves dearly, Absalom, after two years seeing David was doing nothing, murders Amnon. And Absalom flees. It says David never sends for him. For three years, no attempts at communication. It even says that David longed to go to Absalom, but he didn't. Those years allowed Absalom's resentment to build, and this bitterness went on to build and spark a future rebellion. And when David's officer went at great lengths to get Absalom to return. Absalom came back to Jerusalem, but it says he didn't see his father David's face for two full years. This is a wild text. And a half decade ago in Newport News, I preached a sermon on it when I was still the youth pastor. And it was about enabling Amnon's, providing an open door for sexual sins. Because reading the account of Amnon raping Tamar, it's a reminder why we don't often read the Old Testament to our kids when we're putting them to bed, right? No parent would ever aim to enable an Amnon, but parents do it all the time, providing an open door to sexual sin. I've had too many conversations as a youth pastor and a pastor with teenagers and young men addicted to porn, right? And too many parents prop the door open for them, right? Giving a teen an unsupervised, unsupervised internet access and free reign on every app is like giving a small child a loaded weapon. 
right? Practically, we give our children phones for safety, but spiritually, it's unsafe to arm your children with unsupervised, unrestricted internet access. And I'm not going to preach that sermon again tonight, but two pieces of advice were true then and they're true now. Get familiar. I've been out of youth ministry for four years, and I'm pretty much 100% unfamiliar with the apps youth use. It changes all the time. Who was it? Nate and, and the Kearneys were talking last week. They're like, our kids are outside doing a TikTok. I was like, a TikTok? No, they're like a TikTok. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm out of touch. And I've only been out of youth ministry for four years. Just get familiar with what your kids are on, right? And then set boundaries. There's all kinds of monitoring apps and programs for browser history. And when people look at sketchy things, and ladies and gents, this isn't just for kids, <laughs> right? It's useful for grown men. And you may think, oh, I'd never go there. You know, I would never drive off the highway on purpose, but I appreciate guardrails. Right? You put those in place to protect yourself and to have accountability in life. But, again, that's an old sermon. God put something new on my heart for tonight. But I want to speak to David's two most famous sons and perhaps his two greatest failings. The first is Absalom. And Absalom, if you're taking notes, abdicating on our Absaloms. The peril of passive parenting. See, the word abdicate can mean to renounce one's throne. And ironically, the story of Absalom escalates to the point where he throws a coup, and that drives his own father, David, to abdicate his throne and flee for his life. But abdicate also means to fail to fulfill or undertake a responsibility or duty. And it was due to David's abdication of parenting Absalom that led to his eventual abdication of the throne. And David was a man who would pursue a lion or bear in defense of his sheep, he was a young man who ran at a giant with a slingshot in defense of his nation, and yet he was a man who shrunk back when it came time to lead his children. You know, after the rape of his own daughter, Tamar, it says in verse 21 that he was furious, full stop. And the abrupt ending of that verse serves as an indictment of his inactivity. See, passiveness didn't cripple David on the battlefield. It didn't cripple him on the throne, but it crippled him at home. But can we give the guy... a a little bit of a break. Can you think of the stress when you're leading a nation and your decisions weigh on the well-being of thousands, if not millions of people? Can you imagine the stress leading men into battle, knowing that men may live or die and not go home to their families because of the decisions you make and your leadership? How easy would it be to come home from those kind of days and just check out, right? I'm tired. I'm exhausted. You know, I talk to dads again and again who our impulse when we come home is to check out, right? The busyness and pressure of the grind can make us clock out on our calling at home. But we need to continually remind ourselves that when we get home, we check into some of the most meaningful work we will ever do. This is why you should never look at a stay-at-home mom's face and say, oh, you don't work full-time? No, <laughs> they're clocked in full-time to some of the most meaningful work <laughs> that will ever be done. That's, a, that's free tonight. <laughs> but whether you're a mom or whether you're a dad, we're all susceptible. Possessions, careers, maybe even success at that career, all these things, if we're not careful, can cause us to abdicate our role as parents. And to abdicate our call to lead our kids is to set the stage for rebellion. It says in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 5 through 6 of David's uh, parenting his son Adonijah, that David had never disciplined him at any time. Even asking, why are you doing that? Right? Why are you home so late? Where are you? Right? Why does it take you three hours to do what should take you 30 minutes? Anybody ever said that, right? 
Those are questions that loving, active parents act when they love their children. Why don't we? Well, often we don't want to spark conflict. We don't want to upset our kids. We don't want them to build a barrier so we stay uninvolved as a good cop and we figure out at least when they hit rock bottom, they'll turn to me. I talk to parents when in youth ministry. This was their plan, right? I wash my hands of responsibility. I abdicate my role to lead them. And guess what? When they hit rock bottom, they'll come to me. It's a terrible plan. <laughs> you don't need your child to like you as much as you need your child to respect you. If your child doesn't respect you, they're never going to love you the way they should. And when it comes time, they won't turn to you. This was the case with Adonijah. He didn't come to David. He did the opposite. Out of lack of respect for David, he tried to make himself king, not once, but twice, and he ended up dying for it. Right? David's permissiveness only bred rebelliousness, and it led to the death of his son, not once, but twice. Not just Adonijah's life, but Absalom's too. Both rebelled, not just against David in the home, but against David's throne. Maybe you would say, yeah, sometimes parenting feels like this, like I'm raising rebels. Like, let me tell you, uh, Raj, he's nonverbal still, has like six words in his arsenal. So when he wants something, he's going to do something dramatic. One of the things he likes to do at the dinner table when he might need one of 100 different things is to spike his, his cup. And so, of course, we're like, Raj, what do you need? And, and, and then we say, don't throw your cup. As soon as you tell him not to do that, right, he'll hit you with a no-look throw. And I say no look because he's got eye contact with you, those big brown eyes looking at you like the side eye, the Raj side eye. Y'all are familiar. He just looks at you while he throws it like, you're going to do something? I'm going to throw it again, and I'm going to throw it again. And I look at him in those moments. I'm like, you are just a little rebel, right? <laughs> and it's so easy to get caught up in the behavior and forget that there's a condition that causes that behavior, and it's called sin. We were all born into sin. We were all born lost. And David understood this. David wrote himself in Psalm 51 that surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And the picture Scripture gives us, or one of the pictures Scripture gives us for sin is to be lost. And what do lost people need? Direction. They need understanding, help, grace, guidance, wisdom, direction. But to passively let them continue wandering is just to ask them to get more lost. But at the same time, again, it doesn't take parenting longer than 10 minutes to realize the 180 moments are few and far between, if not ever, where your, your son or daughter is going to say, okay, now I'll obey forever. Or where, where do I repent? Where can I repent? You know, sometimes we forget that change is a process. It's not an event. We don't live in constantly grand moments with significant decisions. Often it's in the mundane. It's the fight over the last Coke or where everybody gets to sit in the car or the fight over the outfit or, or Raj pouting when we say no, right? These are the seemingly small moments that we're called to as parents. And we carry a sacred calling in those moments to be a tool in God's hand to shape our children's hearts. But you know, there's a cultural cynicism. I saw it again and again as a youth pastor about raising our teens and about raising our young people, where the teenage years have long been shrugged off as an unproductive struggle. So we check out. We get passive. We abdicate our role to lead and pour into the next generation, whether we're parents or not. We need to see it as, especially as parents, as daily ministry and unprecedented opportunity. We can't afford to be passive and abdicate our role as parents because we can't afford to drop the baton. But the second son and mistake we see with David is, is elevating wisdom over worship. 
That's how you raise a Solomon. See, David walked in wisdom. As we referenced earlier, he was told by people, look, you are as wise as an angel of God. And Solomon had even more. In 1 Kings 4, it says Solomon had very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge as vast as the sands on the seashore. In fact, his wisdom exceeded that of all the wise men of the east and the wise men of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else. Look, I desire this for Raj. I think we desire this for our kids. Wisdom. And not just the wisdom that gets good grades. I'm talking about the wisdom that produces discernment, right? The wisdom that produces discipline. The wisdom that produces self-control. But boy, we do well to remember and heed the words of Psalm 119, or excuse me, 111, 10 where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And after David wrote a majority of these psalms, his own son Solomon would echo these words in Proverbs 9.10, where he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Another translation says, it is the foundation of wisdom. It is the, it is the bedrock. It is what we should be building upon. And this means without worship, wisdom is hollow. Wisdom can't provide meaning, purpose, and calling in your life. It can tell you how, but it, time and time again can't tell us the why. And how does this apply to our kids? Right, like, Raj isn't exactly in grades yet, but, I, you know, I aspire to, to see Raj be a good student. Right? We should aspire to have kids with good grades or at least disciplined enough to do their best. But I've had heart-to-hearts with parents before where I'll tell them, what good is it to have an A-plus student? but an F follower of Christ, or an A minus student, but a C minus follower of Christ. It's meaningless. And I'm not making this an either or decision. Clearly, it's a both and, but there is a priority. And so often we see the priority, the pendulum of priorities swing towards schooling or sports or stuff for college and away from the body of Christ, becoming a disciple of Christ, growing as a follower of Christ. And I'm not pulling from some isolated Old Testament example. You read Philippians. Paul brags on his education. He was like, I was the smartest of the smart. He was the best in his class when it came to Mosaic law. And he's not telling the church to neglect wisdom and knowledge any more than I'm telling you tonight. But after he brags on himself, he says, look, I count all that for nothing. Calling it basically a Greek curse word (laughs) that rhymes with spit. And he says, compared to the knowledge of God, that counts for nothing. You know, personally at home, I got this nice diploma from William and Mary. It's, uh, it's written in Latin. I don't even know what it says. <laughs> they made it look really nice. I should probably have it framed and hung somewhere. I don't even know where it is in the house. Uh, but what's that worth when I kick the bucket? Right? I, c- I can't take that with me. When I was a, a student at William & Mary, I got saved as a senior. So that last year at William & Mary, from that October to the month I graduate, I kept that in mind. And look, I got straight A's my, my second semester senior year. I'm proud of that. Right? I still studied. But prioritizing was easy. Worship comes first. Wisdom without it, it's meaningless. Solomon had all the wisdom in the world. And if the authors, or excuse me, the biblical scholars who attribute the author of Ecclesiastes to Solomon are correct, then the very man who walked in more wisdom than anyone on the planet came to the conclusion in Ecclesiastes 2 that it too is meaningless. He said, since I will end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? This too is meaningless. But the key lies in the two books previous, both which said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Boils down to worship. You know, for my money, there are a few words in the Bible more saddening and sobering than the word nevertheless in 1 Kings 11, where it's talking about Solomon. 
the encounters he'd had with God. He had heard the voice of God. He had all this wisdom, and then it slides this word in. Nevertheless, he married all these women and worse, adopted all their idols, stepped into pagan worship and all these sins, despite all of his wisdom, despite his great knowledge. He had all the wisdom in the world according to Scripture, and yet his worship went off the the rails. (laughs) And without the foundation of worship, we too will crumble. Our children will crumble. You know, I saw all too many youth go through middle school and then high school and then abandon the faith. Modern-day Solomons. You know, there was a stat some years ago that showed 51% of Christian college students will abandon the faith before they graduate. 51%, more than half, barely. But what good is it, again, if you get the best grades and go to the best college but lose your faith in Christ? Again, I'm not talking about an either-or decision, but there's a prioritization. And worship is what is truly key. You know, hear me on this, parents. You parent and you're raising worshipers. I think it was Paul David Tripp who broke it down. He's like, most of the questions you have as parents boils down to their worship. Like, why do my kids do the things they do? Sometimes they're just crazy, right? Sometimes they're just four years old. But sometimes it's because of what they worship. How does change take place? By addressing what they worship. How can I lead and be a tool of change by leading them into worship? You parent worshipers. And this transcends some sermon on parenting. It begins to speak to our own self-control or discipline or behavior. Maybe you feel sometimes like Paul in Romans 7. Why do I do the things I do? The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I'm not doing. Sometimes it's because of your worship. How does change take place? Address your worship. Because what controls your heart ultimately will control your behavior. And what we worship will affect our discipline. See, we want to protect our kids from temptation outside, which is fair, all well and good, but we can't protect them forever. The true battle is going on for what's inside, for their heart and for their worship. A beautiful picture of this is in Homer's tale, The Odyssey. Maybe you're familiar with this. The hero Odysseus goes on an epic journey, and this journey includes a a journey home from the Trojan War. And along the way, as they're sailing, he knew sirens would be on their path. Now, sirens were seductively beautiful mermaids that used their singing to lure sailors away to their death. And he wasn't naive. Odysseus was no fool. He knew he'd be vulnerable to their singing. So he had his men fill their ears with beeswax, and he had them tie him to the mast of the ship. And he said, look, if I'm overcome by temptation, I'm begging you to take me off this mast. Just tighten the ropes. Don't even listen to me. Tighten them, if anything. Tighten them. And of course, he's assaulted by temptation, by the siren singing, but the plan works. The more he cries out, the more his men tighten the ropes. See, the point of this story, there's wisdom in being self-aware. There's wisdom in accounting for our weakness. There's wisdom in setting guardrails. There's wisdom in precaution. Only fools would assume that they can stand strong before every temptation. But there's another lesson in a lesser-known Greek epic by the name of Argonautica. It gives a second strategy to pass the sirens, and it gives us an important lesson. In Argonautica, the men of the ship have a legendary poet and musician as a companion. His name was Orpheus, so I like to think it's Lawrence Fishburne, right? He played Morpheus. He's on board, and he plays a superior, more beautiful song on the lyre than anything the sirens could sing. So the sailors pass on safely because they're enthralled by what he's playing. They're not even worried about what the sirens are singing. These two accounts, 
give us an important picture of wisdom and discipline because the first strategy restrained the hand, but the second strategy captured the heart. And the baton we have to pass to our kids and the sweeter song that we have to pass to the next generation is the sweetness of the good news, the sweetness of God's grace, and the sweetness of the gospel, which is a better song. See, discipline is good, but devotion goes deeper because our devotion transforms our heart, which informs our discipline. Right? We want to insulate and protect the next generation from the temptation outside, which is fair and it's good, but we can't protect them forever. Again, the battle is on the inside for their heart and for their worship because our children, every member of the next generation, every person that's ever born is a worshiper. We start our life worshiping, and throughout life we worship different things. Hopefully, the source and object of our worship is Jesus Christ. Regardless of age, all our biggest problems aren't outside of us like sirens over the horizon ready to wreck our ship. They're inside of us. Jeremiah 17, 9 warns us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Praise God, he gives us a new one, as it says in the New Testament. But the heart is deceitful. Helping our children see the condition of their heart and recognize their need for God is one of the greatest gifts we can ever give them. You know, foolishness is defined in the Psalms as a denial of God. Deeper than just a denial. It's a denial uh, to the point where they don't give, them, give God any thought. Fool has no room for thoughts about God. That means that true wisdom is a recognition of one's need for God. And this recognition can spark devotion that sparks transformation. Thomas Chalmers calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. Where to conquer sins means expelling misplaced affections and misplaced worship and putting our worship again on God. And this doesn't just apply to our kids. It applies to us as we follow. If I could have the worship team come up. Maybe you hear all this about self-control, hear all this about discipline and think, well, I'm off the rails myself. Nobody would ever look at me in the face and say, you have the wisdom of an angel like they said to King David. But we shouldn't forget David, too, went off the rails. His assault of Bathsheba is no doubt what kept him from stepping up to lead when his own daughter was assaulted. The consciousness of his own guilt, no doubt, is what played a part in that paralysis. How could he confront Amnon in light of his own past sin and actions. And maybe you've never sinned like David did, but we abdicate parenting because of the thought, well, I'm not perfect. What do I have to offer? We abdicate leading at work or the church because we feel disqualified. We abdicate sharing our faith because we feel like our faith isn't far along enough yet. When we abdicate these roles and others, it's when we become an interim church that drops the baton. We have to rebuke the lie of the enemy that we've somehow disqualified ourselves and re-embrace the grace of God. It's the one thing we can do tonight, especially as parents. Listen, you were never able to, but God is. Right? You were never faithful enough, but God is. You never knew enough to begin with, but God does. And God leads and God speaks. And God doesn't just give us the grace to equip us. He gives us the grace to cover you. And the most important thing you can do tonight, again, and the most important thing you can grasp tonight is God's grace, whether it's for the first time or it's for the hundredth time. You know, you may think, like, you open talking about all these wild characters and broken branches on Christ's family tree. You think, yeah, that's me. I'm crooked as mess. Well, I'd remind you of the old phrase, I believe it was Martin Luther that said it first, that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. He uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. So whether your branch is pristine or pitiful, (laughs) fractured or fruitful, 
we can put it back in the hands of God tonight because he can use you and he can use me through his grace that calls and equips, through his grace that covers to not just follow him, but invite others as Paul did. Hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's our calling as we follow Christ. Man, we as parents, can we just take a deep breath? Inhale God's grace and exhale the realization that God can use you. All right, can we, all of us, people and followers of Christ, inhale his, his grace and exhale knowing that God can use us to lead anybody, whether it's the next generation or the generation before us, those that need Christ and the hope we have. But just as it starts with our kids, it starts with us. It starts with our worship. What's the, at the heart of our worship? What's at the center of our life? And if we could stand tonight, we're going to close in worship. We're going to go to worship. We're going to sing before God. But Holy Spirit, I ask tonight, God, that you would put your finger on through the Holy Spirit, each thing in our life that needs to fall in line with the truth of your word. Whether it's the picture we have of you as some kind of stern-faced authoritarian rather than a, a father who loves us as a son or daughter, or whether it's this feeling that we're disqualified, this lie of the enemy that gets us to abdicate the roles you have for us, whether it's parent, witness, ambassador of reconciliation, sharer of the gospel, whatever it is, Lord God, I pray that you would remind us of the reality of your grace tonight. As we sing these words, Lord God, let it shape our perspective and the paradigms we operate from because we know that you are a church. We are a church, an interim church that's carrying a baton. <laughs> And God, we want to be one that carries it faithfully, runs the race faithfully, and then hands it on well to the next generation. Whether it's the generation we see once a week at church or the generation at home that we're parenting, Lord God. Help us to remember that we run a race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's got twists and turns, peaks and valleys. But it's also a relay. It's bigger than us. God, help us to walk in that perspective. But God, in the bigness of that perspective, remind us that you're bigger your grace is bigger. <laughs> your Holy Spirit is bigger. So fill us tonight as we worship, again, with this realization of your love and your grace and your mercy. If you need prayer for anything, I'd love to pray for you. Carrie and Susan would love to pray for you. But let's worship tonight, remembering that's, that we're worshipers, raising worshipers. And God, we want to have the sweeter song that we're clinging to. God, that displaces everything else. Like Orpheus' song on that lyre, Lord God, we cling to the sweeter song of the good news and your love and your grace. And we sing of it tonight.